When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, join the band of history as we celebrate music on November 18th, 2023 at Toronto's iconic Massey Hall. Groove to Chest Fever's epic rendition of The Last Waltz and jam with our star-studded guest lineup. An unforgettable night ahead. Don't wait. Grab your ticket at bit.ly slash Hall. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash Hall. Hope to see you there. Robbie Robertson had just finished a marathon. Having decided to end the band, or at least his part, the last waltz was planned primarily something of his own imagination. The show came and went in November of 1976. Still, through pre-production and leading up to the show, the vision was getting bigger and bigger. And the initial Envision concert was now a concert film with serious Hollywood bidders. The film The Last Waltz, alongside the soundtrack for the album, took two years to complete, release, and promote. Robertson almost single-handedly did it himself. His former bandmates were disinterested in the product and dealing with Robertson. Thus, he pressed on in the dark halls of Martin Scorsese's Mulholland Drive mansion. With the film released and the glitz and glamour of Cannes Film Festival and the interviews worldwide complete, Robertson's next step was positioning himself further in the Hollywood apparatus. Since the mid-1970s, the allure of Hollywood was something that Robbie desired. His move to Malibu almost signaled to everyone around him he was serious about Hollywood. This paired with his recent friendship with David Geffen, who filled his head with limitless opportunities, led him to fancying a career shift to superstar producer and new Hollywood hunk. Robbie was also a lover of the moving picture, Since childhood, he was enamored by the imagery and escapism. He and Richard Manuel would frequent movies during the early to mid-60s while living in New York City. And he tried to invoke movie-like imagery in his songwriting. So with The Last Waltz as his first significant portfolio piece, he set his sights on creating a vehicle that would put Hollywood on notice that Robbie Robertson had arrived and he was ready to be taken seriously. I worked in a carny as a kid, Robbie remembers in a 1980 interview for Rolling Stone magazine. So in 1978, when numerous suitors had sent scripts his way, alongside his team in Hollywood, including several heavyweights, he was positioning his next move. One submission of notice was from documentary filmmaker Robert Kaler, who hired novelist Thomas Baum to write a script called Carney. When Robertson read it, it felt like a perfect match. He later stated, quote, This was such a fresh and original take. I had to go with my heart, so I went with Kaler. He had spent years with Carney people. The story of Carney is quite simple. We are introduced to Frankie, a young man who embarks on a fascinating journey by joining a carnival as a ticket taker. As he immerses himself in the strange and shadowy world of the carnival culture, 
Frankie finds himself irresistibly drawn to an enchanting and graceful carnival dancer named Donna. Their budding affection, however, faces complexity with the arrival of Patch, a charismatic and cunning carnival barker who casts a dark cloud over their romance. With each passing day, Frankie is further entangled in the complexities and mystery of the carnival. Deception, jealousy, and peril lurk beneath the surface, challenging his trust and loyalty. And as he navigates through this labyrinth of emotion and secrets, the stakes rise, leading to a pivotal moment that exposes the true essence of the carnival and its perplexing occupants. The tale culminates in a thrilling revelation that transforms Frankie forever through profound experiences of love, betrayal, self-discovery amidst the mysterious carnival world. Like any pitcher, assembling the correct team was paramount. As mentioned, Robert Kaler was hired directly with Robertson's blessing. Kaler was seen as a risk. He lacked any real experience or track record of successful filmmaking. His only major credit before Carney was a film he directed almost a decade earlier, 1970s Derby, a look at the world of professional roller derby. Thus, it was important to build a strong team around him. Robertson hired himself to produce the film alongside a more seasoned and familiar face in Jonathan Taplin, the former road manager for the band, turned producer who had worked with Martin Scorsese and had just helped produce The Last Waltz. He came on as an executive producer. And as noted by The Hollywood Reporter, Laszlo Kovacs was circling the project. The noted cinematographer had worked with Robbie on The Last Waltz, but eventually Harry Stradling Jr., a seasoned cinematographer who had shot nearly 100 episodes of the television show Gunsmoke in films like Little Big Men and The Way We Were, was hired. Casting was a significant component of the pre-production process, perhaps given other variables the most important. Robbie would star as the main character, but he needed support from big-name stars to get people in seats. Their first big-name attached was Gary Busey, who had been acquainted with the band for some time and would go on to play with Rick Danko several times. Busey came from recent significant successes in the films like A Star is Born and his Oscar-nominated performance in The Buddy Holly Story. Busey was set to play Frankie, the carny who acts as the mighty Bozo, a character who sits in a dunk tank insulting the crowd opposite to Robertson's Patch. Patch is also the show's adjuster, hence his carny name, working with the carnival owner to negotiate deals, oddly similar to his role in the band. The last role to fill was the female character, Donna, the independent 18-year-old bored with small-town life who strikes up a friendship with Frankie and, at his invitation, follows the carny onto the circuit. Patch is less than happy with her presence and wants her out of the picture. A challenging role to fill, it was decided that a young Jodie Foster would take the role. Considered by many her first real adult role, Foster, who had been a child actor, had scored big with hits like Taxi Driver. Foster was merely 16 at the time of filming, and given the sexuality of the role, it was an interesting choice. The core of the cast was now set, Essential as the relationship between the three characters of Busey, Robertson, and Foster were central to the plot, especially as the film gets darker and more complicated with the jealous love triangle, the cast was rounded out by acting veterans like Meg Foster, Kenneth McMillan, and Alicia Cook Jr. Filming took place in Savannah, Georgia, and was immediately met with your typical Vanity Project problems. The accesses of former rock stars. Drugs were a problem. 
Robertson had developed a nasty cocaine habit, ravaging himself during the post-production of The Last Waltz with Martin Scorsese. The drug had taken hold, further destroying his marriage with Dominique and alienating him from his young children. Having been so vocal about his former bandmate's drug issues and his supposed fear of dying playing the rock and roll lifestyle, Robertson was neck deep himself and maybe the fears he projected on others were ultimately his own about himself. Busey was a noted party animal and the pair got up to no good during production. The excess, debauchery, and deceit paired with an inexperienced leader and director Robert Kaler was a recipe for an uneven film. There was also questionable things happening during the production. Firstly, Jodie Foster's two sex scenes with Busey and Robertson, both in their mid-30s and Foster being a mere 16, are quite icky, if not predatory. Foster also had to deal with a stalker, according to Jonathan Taplin, John Hinckley Jr., noted for his assassination attempt on U.S. President Ronald Reagan a few years later, was stalking Foster after becoming obsessed with her during Taxi Driver. He appeared on set numerous times, disrupting and disturbing Foster before being removed. And in July of 1979, Robertson and co. rapped on Carney. He and Busey celebrated by drinking at a bar in Lower Manhattan. Whether myth or fact, that night Busey was being harassed after coming from the restroom by some rough characters, only for Robertson to emerge, smashing his glass against the wall, making a crude shiv and pointing it at Busey's harassers without a word before making a swift exit. Almost feeling like a scene from the movie and not real life, Busey and Robertson had become close on the project, and he was confident in its success. As the film moved into post-production, the score was something to take into consideration. Many considered Robertson to take the score on himself. However, he opted to work with master Alex North. North was a highly influential and celebrated American composer, renowned for his groundbreaking work in film scoring and his contributions to contemporary classical music. North's career took off in the late 1940s when he began composing music for film. He quickly gained recognition for his innovative approach to film scoring, which departed from the traditional symphonic soundtracks. In 1951, he achieved widespread acclaim for his work on Ilya Kazan's film A Streetcar Named Desire, for which he composed a jazz-inspired score that perfectly captured the intense and emotional atmosphere of the film. One of North's greatest achievements was his score for Stanley Kubrick's 1968 science fiction epic 2001 A Space Odyssey. The film's iconic opening sequence, set to Richard Strauss's also Sprack Zarathura, remains one of the most recognizable musical moments in cinema history. Robertson's contributions to the score are ample, entitled Midway Music, with the instrumental Garden of Earthly Delights, a bluesy number suited for backing the carnival's low-rent strip show, featuring a guitar solo by Robbie Robertson himself.
Another one was Peg and Knight in a similar feel, adding Mac Rabinac, aka Dr. John, on the organ line. In the film, sideshow fat man Harold Jellybelly, played by George Emerson, performs a cover of Fat Domino's 1950 hit, The Fat Man, but the soundtrack features Robertson singing and performing instead. Robbie's co-star Gary Busey also appears on the track, playing drums and singing harmony. And the melody of the fat man appears on Robbie's instrumental, Rained Out, one of Robertson's two compositions on the album where he doesn't play guitar. Then the organ-heavy Freak's Lament, a dreamy number about someone who is down and out trying to get by. There's also sawdust and g-strings that Robertson didn't write, rather saxophonist Randall Bramlett and guitarist Dave Kousey. Nevertheless, it's one of the highlights of the soundtrack, featuring some funky bass and organ riffs, in a bubbling backbeat. As writer Sally O'Rourke notes, quote, if Midway Music soundtracks the public face of the carnival, the lighthearted sleaze and the anything-goes attitude, then Themes and Variations expresses the private emotions of the carnival workers behind the scenes and the problems they grapple with in both their personal and their work lives. Themes and Variations was Norse musical contribution encompassing a diverse range, showcasing both string-laden classic Hollywood pieces like the enchanting and romantic Remember to Forget and the somber and introspective I'm a Bad Girl. Additionally, he delves into more abstract territories with compositions like Carnival, Bozo, and Fear and Revelation, and the disorientating overstimulization experienced during the less alluring aspects of a carnival.
During this period, grumbling started to emerge around Hollywood that the film wasn't commercial. Writer Chet Flippo, who had spent some time with Robbie during the film's production, and in the days just after wrapping, asked Robbie about those doubts. He said, Carney is a long shot, but I had to do it because I believe in it, and I don't care what people think. A long shot indeed, reviews started to trickle in, and they weren't good. Noted film critic Roger Ebert said, quote, Carney is bursting with more information about American carnivals than it can contain, surrounding a plot too thin to support it, before giving the film a measly two stars. In the New York Times, Vince Canby stated in his review, quote, it appears to be unable to resist the colorful or bizarre materials that leads nowhere. And Gary Arnold of the Washington Post concluded, the material never does achieve dramatic coordination or resolution. But there were some glimpses of positivity in some of the reviews, to be fair, especially the acting performances. Gene Siskel awarded three and a half stars out of four, calling Busey superb. And Charles Champlin of the Los Angeles Times praised the excellence of the acting. As mentioned earlier, Rolling Stone writer Chip Rolling Stone writer Chet Flippo, who had followed Carney during its production, found himself in 1980 back with Robbie. Now at his lavish offices at the MGM lot, word had gotten around that Carney was a bust. Pressing Robertson on this, he said, quote, The audiences were violently divided. I feel like I have an anxiety attack coming on. Not only was the picture maligned, but so was the score. The expectation from a former rock star was a score that favored the sonic landscape of the band practically expecting a new album from the former guitarist. To the crowd of naysayers, he was quoted to say, The album is half Alex North and half me. Working with North has been one of the greatest musical experiences of my life. I like the soundtrack, but it's a very strange record. And in the end, the film was released June 13, 1980, on a budget of $6 million, and it floundered at the box office, in total netting just over $1.6 million what Hollywood calls a flop. Concluding the experience and his thoughts on the film, Robbie said, quote, I feel good about it, about the relationship and its rawness. Whether it's right for somebody else, I don't know. This can't flop for me. Take the last waltz. Was that a flop? I don't know what a flop is. Like I told you a year ago, if I can't take a chance, well then, fuck, I'd rather stay home. With the completion of Carney, Robbie wasted no time by heading back into safer territory, working with his friend Martin Scorsese. The filmmaker was busy at work on what would be his 1980 masterpiece, Raging Bull. Scorsese had hit a snag at the end of the 70s. His film New York, New York flopped, and his escapades with Robbie and others led to a fracturing of his family and almost his life. After nearly dying from a drug overdose, Scorsese agreed to make the film not only to save his own life, but also to save his career. Scorsese began to relate very personally to the story of Jake LaMotta, the film's protagonist, and in it he saw how the boxing ring can be an allegory for whatever you do in life, which for him paralleled movie making. You make movies, you're doing... You make movies, you're in the ring each time. And Robertson's involvement played a crucial role in shaping the film's emotional impact. As the music supervisor... Robertson brought his immense musical expertise and sensibility. His previous work on The Last Waltz and other projects, like Carney, showcased his exceptional talent for curating and integrating music into the film's narrative. 
With Raging Bull, he faced the challenge of creating a soundscape that perfectly complemented the film's raw and intense portrayal of the life of boxer Jake LaMotta, played by Robert De Niro. The film's setting in the 1940s and 1950s demanded an authentic and invocative soundtrack, and Robertson delivered. He meticulously selected classic tracks from the era, including songs by artists like Bing Crosby, Perry Como, and Nat King Cole Trio. These songs not only provided a nostalgic backdrop, but also helped establish the film's period atmosphere, enhancing the audience immersion into LaMotta's tumultuous world. In addition to curating existing tracks, Robertson supplied three newly recorded instrumental jazz tracks for source music, which he also produced. These three tracks featured Robbie playing guitar, along with performances from his former bandmates Garth Hudson and Richard Manuel. One of the tracks, Webster Hall, is co-written by Robertson and Garth Hudson. Additionally, Robertson collaborated with composer Petro Mascani to use his previously noted opera arrangements for a vital emotional moment in the film. This haunting piece perfectly underscores the film's dramatic tension, adding an additional layer of depth to the story. Beyond his role as the music supervisor, Robertson's creative input extended to the film's iconic opening sequence. The mesmerizing, slow-motion visuals of De Niro's shadowboxing in the ring were paired with the ethereal sounds of the opera from Maskeny, a combination that became a defining cinematic moment. The collaboration between Scorsese and Robertson showcased a deep understanding of the film's themes and emotions. And these choices amplified the narrative, heightening the impact and powerful performances by the cast. 
Through their collaboration, Raging Bull emerged as a masterpiece that seemingly blended the music, visuals, and storytelling. And the film's critical and commercial success is a testament to the power of Robbie's collaboration with Marty. Raging Bull received widespread acclaim and several Academy Award nominations. As the new decades dawn embraced him, Robbie Robertson stood with a newfound confidence. The aftermath of his venture into acting with Carney, though spectacularly unsuccessful, only served to strengthen his resolve. Now he found himself collaborating with an old ally. Amidst the ebbs and flows of his personal and professional journey, one undeniable trait defined Robertson, an unwavering ambition that propelled him to solidify his position as a singular force, leaving an indelible mark in any way imaginable. With the 80s beckoning, he embarked on a resolute mission to carve a lasting, singular legacy. Thank you for listening to the Band of History. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Definitely a fun one for me. Having only really seen bits and pieces of Carney, uh, really kind of sitting down and watching the entirety of the film was interesting. Robbie's career at this point was also something that was really interesting to me as I worked my way through this. You know, this is a guy who, you know, on paper when you look at it in a history book or on Wikipedia, did the last waltz, and then didn't release an album until like 1986. There's like a 10-year gap. A lot of people would assume that he didn't do anything while his other bandmates or former bandmates continued to truck on. You know, Levon did several albums. Rick did an album. Garth was doing a bunch of great session work and his own album. Um, and, you know, Richard was in the same boat, at least on paper, as Robbie. But, you know, his attempt to jump into Hollywood as an actor something that you see seeds of in the last waltz was an interesting journey. Um, and you know how he really kind of took something that he loved in movie scoring and kind of painting pictures with, uh, with movies, um, and kind of got involved in the world of scoring and soundtrack was, is something that is super interesting and something that I think he's more interested in, or he's more con continuously done, uh, to this day. Um, you know, I think some people may have a problem with how I portrayed him. There's a lot of sensitivities for a lot of folks around, you know, Robbie and Levon, but I tried to keep it even keeled, but also go into the facts and what was reported uh, during that time, whether it was his drug use or his ambition. I don't think there's anything wrong with being ambitious, but you know, Hollywood has a tendency to make and break people. And it was definitely hard on Robbie as an actor. Um, you know, he's not the first rock star and definitely won't be the last to try to jump over to movies uh, as an actor and not necessarily be that successful. Uh, there was a lot of films like this during that era, whether it's like Mick Jagger's film performance amongst others. Um, but 
you know, the film and, and this story and period of Robbie's life is very much a testament to that late 70s and early 80s excess uh, that kind of plagued the scene. Probably still there, to be completely honest. It never really changes. It's very seedy. Um, but it was a really fun episode to try to put together for you. So I really hope you enjoyed it. If you're interested in following us online and conversing with us, we're everywhere. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, which is now X, I guess, and Instagram at The Band Podcast. We're also on Threads, if anybody's over there at The Band Podcast. Um, you can find us on TikTok at The Band Podcast as well. Uh, additionally, if you want to support the show monetarily, you can go over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash History. Uh, all my wonderful patrons and friends over there who have been supporting the show, thank you again, as always. Uh, we're really trying to do a lot of new cool stuff over there on Patreon. So on top of early access to the episodes, you know, writing, things from the vault, we're trying to get a little bit more interactive. We have a monthly call that we do, which is open to all patrons to come on and just chat, catch up with each other, talk about the band, talk about the podcast, etc., I just launched a bi-monthly book club where, we'll be, where we will be diving into uh, one band book at a time. There's not a whole ton of them, but, you know, we'll keep it going as long as we can. Uh, there's been some excitement about that. So consider becoming a patron. Supporting the show uh, definitely helps. And you can do that over at patreon.com slash thebandhistory. As always, thanks to Mike, my editor, make me sound good or as best as I can sound. Appreciate it. And uh, thank you to all the listeners for continuing to support the podcast. I know the episodes are few and far in between and uh, you guys show up every time. So thank you for that. And we'll catch you on the next one. It's NFL draft season. And that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.